race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all. Hello and welcome to the return of the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. I'm your host, Peter Thomas Fornital, on this September 8th, coming to you from Saratoga Springs, the little house on the east side, as we call it. Very happy to have with me a different co-host for this show. Other voices you've heard on In the Ring will be back for future episodes. But today, very happy to have with me a broadcaster of some renown. That's what we're going to call him. You've heard him recently on this network on his eponymous daily podcast. Nick Luck, how are you, my friend? Very well, Peter, and very honored to be co-hosting this esteemed podcast with you and looking ahead to the big Tattersall but one sale from Park Paddocks, which is going to run first week in October, so not too far away from the normal time frame, 6th to the 8th of October. We have a an array of guests for you over the course of this show. We'll be getting to them in just a minute. But before we did that, I did want to ask you, Nick, specifically, just for a little bit of an overview. You talked about the revised calendar in the UK bloodstock world. For Americans who pay attention to what's going on over there, but maybe aren't in tune to the, the day-to-day, what's the latest news? What are the attitudes like? What, what can we expect for the rest of the season? Well, I think the prevailing attitude is that the sales houses, the two major sales houses based here in the UK, Tattersalls and, and Goffs, have done an exceptional job getting the awesome, the full yearling sales to go ahead. Goffs undertook the premier yearling sale at, at Doncaster in the in the first week in September, and that was perceived to have gone reasonably well. Yes, the market took something of a hit, particularly at the top end, because a big patron of that sales shake hand and Al Maktoum wasn't playing. So there was a big hit at the top end. But what was encouraging was that the clearance rate, the amount of horses that get moved from vendor to purchaser was quite strong. And so plenty of horses were finding new homes. There was an appetite for people to have horses in training. The end users still had an appetite for the animals, even if by natural consequence of what's happened this year with covid the purchase prices were coming down. How do you feel like USA participation in the sale has evolved? Well, you're going to hear from Chad Brown later in this in this podcast. I've, I've spoken to him, and without wishing to give away too much of that, I think that it, he and others have realized that there's a, a whole group of potentially very talented, blue-blooded horses that they can now get a look in on. And that's mainly because of the spending power of People like Seth Klarman and Peter Brandt, and they're prepared to come over and not just look at ready-made horses from Europe, but horses that they can build a career with. And a newspaper of record was obviously the first one that sprung to mind a few years ago. But you'll hear more about that a little bit later on. I'm more interested in the impact that might have for the next generation of horses. If European-bred blue bloods head to the United States in greater numbers and are handled by brilliant young trainers like Chad Brown and Brad Cox, for example. What sort of impact is that going to have on the whole breed of grass horses in the United States? Are we going to see better turf stallions? Will we see turf horses that are bred and raised then in the United States able to compete more readily with horses that are bred and raised in Europe into the next generation? And that is what fascinates me. And I always think that that has got to be a good thing for global competition and w- keeping the profile of both continents high. 
What is your take on the the dual surface horses in the USA? Not necessarily by traditional turf sires, but being able to have success on both on both surfaces. What really delineates a sire who's going to be able to to get turf horses as as opposed to dirt horses, or do the best sires get both? I think there's relatively few horses that get performers who are as effective on turf as on dirt. The Giants Causeway would be one notable example of stallions in the modern era. At Warfront, you could argue, has had some success on, on dirt, though he's mostly associated with, with success on turf. But there aren't many who do it really effectively on, on both surfaces. I'd love to have seen more Dubawi horses, for example, race in traditional American grade one dirt races or have the opportunity to have done so because the relatively a scant evidence over the last decade of horses that have performed on dirt, say in the in the United Arab Emirates by Dubawi, is that he he is a, a sire that can get you pretty much anything you want. People will argue till they're blue in the face whether it is him or whether it's Galileo that's the best sire in the world. But there's no doubt for me at the top level that that Dubawi has a strong claim to to being the most versatile stallion. In the world, it's an interesting conversation, and I'm fascinated in the the cross pollination of bloodstock here and abroad. And it's one of the reasons why I like paying attention to the sale so much. We're going to learn a ton about it over the course of the next hour or so. Here's how it's going to work: We're going to sort of pass the baton back and forth. Some of the interview segments will be led by me. Uh, Nick will have a notable one that he referred to already a little bit later on in the show. And we'll get started right now. We have the director of marketing from Tattersall's, Jimmy George. Jimmy, how are you today? I'm in good form, Pete. Good form. We've got a one-day yearling sale going on here at Tattersall's today. So busy, busy. That's our first Tattersall's yearling sale of 2020. Well, it's a great place to start, actually, because I wanted to ask you about the international demand. We were talking a little bit about this off air, but the international demand for Tattersall's yearlings and how it's changed over the last several years. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the biggest change in the last, it's probably the last three years, really, has been the steady growth of American participation, really. Um, But one of the October yearling sale in particular has always been a focus for a lot of the world's uh, leading owners, particularly those uh, focused primarily on turf. So, you know, buyers from Japan and throughout the Gulf region and Hong Kong, et cetera, et cetera, and always a smattering of North American interest. But it, it really picked up in 2017 with a, with a sort of pioneering crew Um, comprising largely Mike Ryan um, and Chad Brown, alongside um, Mr. Brandt, Peter Brandt, who who came over himself as well with with his team. And um, they were hugely successful. And uh, the the, the sort of Chad-Mike axis were buying not only for Mr. Brandt, but also for Seth Klarman, um, who who wasn't at the sale. But on the back of that success, that that first trip to book one of the October yearling sale yielded uh, not just the the mighty newspaper of record, but but actually their most recent Grade One winner in Digital Age, who who obviously uh, won the Grade One in the weekend. Uh, just just over the past weekend. So that sort of success tends to attract attention, doesn't it? And uh, they they came back 
armed even more strongly in 2018 and and last year again similar team but with with greater numbers i think the success had not gone unnoticed by others and we had a we had a really diverse um bench of north american buyers at book one of 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 last year's Tallisall's October yearling sale, some of whom stayed on into book two. And uh, no, it's been fantastic to see. But that that actually, the, the, the buying bench from North America has been the biggest change in the last three years, also alongside a stronger participation from Australia as well. I wanted to ask, this is sort of a chicken and egg question, where did the idea come from that led to that eureka moment? Were, were they curious about the, the sale specifically because of all the money in American uh, turf purses over the last few years? Or was this a conscious marketing effort on behalf of Tattersalls to reach out to these Americans and say, hey, look, this is a pretty good idea? It was a bit of both. Um, we, you know, uh, you know us Brits, Pete, we don't like to, to blow our own trumpets. Too much, <laughs> but but, um, but we, we, we did identify very clearly um, in conjunction with our, our North American representative, Lincoln Collins, who's, who's a very well-respected bloodstock consultant based in, in Lexington. Sure. Um, and uh, we did identify the fact that the, the whole turf scene in North America had just grown and grown and grown in recent years. And we felt that, yeah, we there were opportunities at Tattersalls which they wouldn't have anywhere else in the world. And uh, that we had to properly target some of these top end American trainers, agents and owners. And uh, we, you know, we, we did set our caps directly at Chad and um, and and Mike Ryan as a sort of prolific, you know, Chad being the most obvious and most successful turf trainer in um, or, or, or pretty well specialist almost on the turf, and uh, as somebody that if if they were disposed to to believe what we were saying, <laughs> might come over and find exactly the sort of horses that he'd been so successful with over the years, but buying them as yearlings rather than having to ante up even more, buying them as proven graded stakes performers at the age of two or three. And, uh, you know, I, I guess we're hugely grateful that the guys listened to us to a degree, but I think also had a very clear idea of what they were looking for and the sort of quality of the pedigrees and the stock that they were going to find at book one of the October yearling sale anyway. So as I say, it's a bit of both. We can't we can't claim all the credit, um, <laughs> but I'd like to take a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about these book one graduates. We've talked already about the extraordinary success they've had on these shores. What is it about a book one yearling that sets it apart from its American counterparts and other horses and sales all around the world? I think it's, you know, these are the, cream of the European yearling crop at, uh, in, in book one of the October yearling sale. And so anybody looking for superior turf horses, this is the primary focus. This is the sale that they have to be at. And I think not only, not only are these the, the, the sort of the best pedigrees, but at present, I think we are lucky in Europe to have an extraordinary depth 
in terms of the quality of, of the stallions standing in Europe at the moment. I think to, certainly in terms of the 35 odd years that, that I've been involved, the, the, the top stallions in Europe are as good as we've had. Um, and, you know, it's not just Galileo and Dubawi any longer. Um, those are the two big boys. But, you know, you have Frankel, you have Kingman, you have See the Stars, Dark Angel, Kodiak, Lope de Vega, you know, who's obviously had a huge impact in North America since the guys have been coming over to book one. Um, these are really, really good stallions. And book one will have, you know, 150, 200 odd yearlings each year by these very very elite sires and and i think that's something that the the you know the the discerning buyers have identified good stuff let's talk about the specifics what can you tell us about this year's catalogs for books one and two it's uh, it's pretty exciting it's pretty exciting we're um we've we've got another uh, very high quality book one um but you as i say you'd expect that um, it, would be, it would be disappointing if I wasn't saying that. Um, and, uh, you know, at the last count, there are own or half brothers and sisters to 55 group or grade one winners in the catalogue. Um, that um, happily went up two over the weekend when Digital Age won um, and also Dream of Dreams won the, the Group 1 sprint at Haydock. So, uh, you know, this is a figure. I think, And I think that demonstrates the depth of the quality in the catalogue is that, you know, I can tell you today it's 51, but it could be 56, 57 in two weeks' time. Uh, this is a this is a catalogue where the pedigrees are really live and they're evolving and improving, you know, day by day. So, uh, no, it's, it's, a, it's a really top-class catalogue, and we've got 20 yearlings by Dubawi, 19 by Galileo, 32 by Frankel, 21 by Kingman. You know, that, I think that tells you a, tells you a story. There's, there's real depth um, to the quality this year. 2020 has been such an extraordinary year. What are your expectations in terms of uh, demand and interest at this year's sale? I think we're all looking forward to 2021. <laughs> <laughs> um, assuming that's going to be an improvement. Um, look, Pete, we're uh, it's it's been it's been challenging for everybody, hasn't it? In in every walk of life in every sector of society and in every country in the world. So um, we, we can't pretend we can't pretend anything's likely to be plain sailing. Having said that, the sales we have staged in so far in 2020 or in the in the post COVID 2020 have, I think it's fair to say, outperformed expectation. Um, the breeze up sector uh, held up well. Um, and our horses and training sales have been little short of extraordinary, to be honest, with, with sort of 90 plus percent clearance rates and, and, you know, the market very much matching the levels of last year. The yearling market is, I suspect, a little bit different. Um, and, uh, you know, we, <clears throat> we, we, you know, we are, well, we have always been focused on trying to attract as many top end overseas buyers as possible and that does pose challenges and there's no point in pretending otherwise but we are doing our damnedest to try and make sure that as many people can attend the october yearling sales at tattersall's as we 
possibly can by you know by any means by any means that we can and if they can't attend we have introduced uh, live internet bidding uh, earlier this year um, and you know telephone bidding and we will be making it very <clears throat> very clear that you know there are a huge number of bloodstock professionals here on the grounds that people can hook up with and hopefully get their work done uh, in in a way that they may not normally have done but uh, you know so we're exploring every avenue we possibly can and I think it's it's clear throughout the world that people still have an appetite for the best quality thoroughbreds that there are. I want to follow up about that idea of the bloodstock agents on the grounds who might be able to help interested American buyers. I know many of whom are listening. That's such an important thing to have eyes on the ground when dealing with young, unproven stock. How's that process going to work in terms of uh, creating the partnership between a potential American buyer and a local bloodstock agent in the event that uh, we don't see nearly as many Americans because of the situation in the world? Mm, yeah, I think the the beauty of the bloodstock business is that it is, as we know, incredibly international. People habitually travel to sales in all categories, whether it's yearlings or breeding stock or two-year-old in training. Um, so they're constantly exposing themselves to international markets and building up relationships whilst they do so. And there's an awful lot of very experienced bloodstock professionals over here, as there would be in the States who might be hoping to to perform similar roles, you know, for, for Europeans who can't travel to America this year. And those relationships are key. And the, the trust and everything that's built up between bloodstock professionals over the years, this is where they come into play. And people can put those into action with people they trust, with vet, vets that they trust in the various different countries. The information can be posted, you know, in, in many different ways and, um, you know, on through through modern technology and our website, in, uh, for example, will feature um, walking and standing shots of all the book one yearlings on the website done professionally by um, by companies that that specialize in that in that format. So there's a huge amount of information out there. But equally, so many of these bloodstock professionals have working relationships that they've built up over many, many years. And I'm sure those will be crucial and will come into play in a big way, in addition to the other avenues like the live Internet bidding and, and the telephone bidding. I wanted to follow up about that idea of the online live bidding. You mentioned it's been successful so far, uh, and I assume you expect it to be at the yearling sales. But what else can you tell me about how that process has evolved? Yeah, evolved is the right word, actually, Pete, because we introduced it at Tattersall's about 12 years ago. And um, the, the, the response was particularly underwhelming. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, <clears throat> that, <clears throat> that went in the learning curve column. <clears throat> Perhaps we were a little bit ahead of our time, but... Obvious, for obvious reasons, we felt uh, having shelved it. So we, we shelved it just because there didn't appear to be the appropriate appetite for it um, back then. And um, with everything that's happened this year, we rolled it out again in a, an improved format, we believe. The technology's moved on a little bit since then. And uh, it has been really, really well received and widely embraced, in the, particularly in the horses and training sales that we've had. 
so far. So the July sale and the and the, the sort of the one the August sale, which we introduced for the first time the other day, there was a huge amount of live internet bidding on those horses in training, which I think is a sector that particularly lends itself to live internet bidding. You know, horses with form that, you know, that's the key to them. You get your vet action done, but you don't necessarily need to do quite the same manner of due diligence that you would with young stock. So with the yearlings, yes, I think it is a tool that will be used and 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 uh, will be appreciated and widely embraced, but perhaps not uh, it, it might not be um, quite as widely used as it has been for the in the horses and training sector. I might be wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But it's there and it's just another way in which people can participate. And that 60% of the lots that went through our August sale had at least one internet bid on them, which I think is a huge stat. Very, very cool. And, and your hypothesis makes a ton of sense. Let's say there's somebody listening to the show who's coming in pretty cold, very interested in the sale, but doesn't necessarily have those existing relationships with bloodstock agents overseas. Is there anything uh, that can be done to, to facilitate making those connections ahead of a sale like this? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the key is to plan ahead, um, if you possibly can, and to contact us if you have any questions contact uh, any of the team at Tadasols probably the marketing team the guys that work with me the guys and the girls that work with me and uh, we can try and answer as many questions as we possibly can for for anybody who uh, uninitiated or already expert in the field we can try and facilitate as best as we possibly can and steer people in the right direction and i think that's really the the key to to the challenges that we all face in 2020 is to, we're here to assist. I think it, it's not really a year to be out there hustling people. It's a year to try and assist people. Um, we'll, try to, we'll try to assist um, as best we can. And, um, you know, but hustling, as I say, is perhaps um, secondary at the moment. And, um, but helping and assisting in, in, in every possible way is key to, to you know, how we approach the 2020 um, October yearling sales season at Tattersall's. Jimmy George is the Director of Marketing at Tattersall's. Thank you so much for your time today. It's a pleasure, Pete. And uh, yeah, be in touch whenever you feel like it. Cheers, my friend. All the best. Well, Park Paddocks at Tattersall's has been a very happy hunting ground through the last two or three seasons for multiple Eclipse Award-winning trainer, Chad Brown and Chad joins me now. Chad, what sort of impact has purchasing yearlings at Tattersall's had on your success over the last few seasons? Yeah, I think we've gotten three crops of horses out of there and so far we've done really well. You know, it's it's definitely at another dimension to our stable and, you know, those horses that we've gotten out of there, plenty of them have gone on to really have nice careers over here so far. And what prompted you to, to start sourcing your raw material from, from Europe in the first place? It was a conversation with Peter Brandt and I when we started to work together, and he's always a very forward thinker, you know, studying the markets and, and trying to figure out ways to, you know, obtain new prospects. And um, he had mentioned to me about, you know, what, what do you think about going over there and buying some European bred yearlings and actually just bringing them over here and breaking them due to the fact that purchasing horses that are already racing in Europe is becoming harder and harder the last few years. It just um, it just seems like there's less available, 
you know, less talented horses owned by people who are willing to sell them, which was much different than when, you know, I worked back with, uh, with Bobby Frankel when, you know, he was buying plenty of horses over there and, and being able to move them. Don't get me wrong. We still buy horses. I have several clients that still buy horses in Europe and import them, but it's just, it's harder to do. Uh, I'd say over the last 10 years, really. So that was, I think really the reason for him really thinking about buying them at a younger age to have, uh, get more of them under our care. And I think it was a great idea. And, and, you know, we set up a team to go do it. Before we go into the specifics of some of the stars that you've bought at, at Tattersall's, when you go, what are you specifically looking for relative to what a European buyer might be looking for? Question. I mean, it's probably a lot of similarities, actually, what we're looking for. I, I do find myself bidding against, you know, the European owners or trainers. So I, I don't know that it's a totally different horse in America. We try to find horses that we think will have a good turn of foot. And obviously, when you're looking at yearlings, it, it might sound foolish to say that. But, you know, I, I feel like I have a pretty good handle from all the horses we've trained. I've been around through the years. And, yeah, I try to match them up with horses that I know in my head, you know, if they remind me of something and really how they move. And you just put the whole picture together. Picking yearlings is difficult. And if anyone tells you they're a total expert about it and, and always get it right, they're, they're certainly lying. So it's hard. But we do have a really good uh, team. You know, I, Mike and Mary Ryan go over and shortlist everything for me. And, and I've learned a lot from them. And um, and like I said, I put that with what I know about training turf horses and really what I'm looking for. And um, moving over our vets from Rude and Riddle, you know, we just put a lot into it. And like I said, so far we've been able to identify some horses that do work in America. Would you be a pedigree man or a confirmation man, chiefly? Yeah, that's a good question. No, both. Um, I, I find myself, again, the more horses I work around, that I, I, I find pedigrees that I don't feel work in America. They don't work for me. Uh, I, I just haven't had any luck with them, either in my barn or horse. You know, if I study other races and I see patterns, you know, I, I stay away. And, um, I see other horses that I... Um, have had luck with so I tend to look at them more I don't fall in love with just one sire two sires if if it just because we had luck I I try to not do that I try to be disciplined about that but surely if you have success you're going to leave more of those on your short list I'd say I'm probably 60 40 on just the individual you know I'm looking for horses that you know look a certain way move a certain way uh, act a certain way Um, but they have to have a pedigree that makes sense to me you know, pull it all together in the end to, to pick out what you're going to buy. So it's not just correctness of limb, say. It's more a whole package and athleticism about the horse that you're looking for. Yeah, as I, I find, Nick, is uh, I do this more and I gain more experience. I'm, I'm, every year I go to the sales, I'm more forgiving about confirmational, you know, flaws or even some vetting flaws. And you just, you learn to live with more as you have more horses under your care that go on to be successful and you really look at them after they've been successful and say, you know, hey, they overcame this minor vet flaw or they're not made just right. Yeah, you just, um, you learn to live with more through, you know, the more you do this. So tell me about some of the successes you've had from the sales ring at Tattersall's. Who would be the most notable graduates from the sale that have done well for you? Yeah, I mean, well, newspaper record, you know, it's obviously the, the first year and the, the headliner has done so much. It's a talented horse and then, you know, along with her, we've had, um, you know, Digital Age just won his first grade one, you know, 
this past week, and he's been a really consistent horse, you know, all the way along. He's built a nice career for himself. You know, we've had this horse domestic spending, another Kingman. He um, he took down the Saratoga Derby, and really nice horse. Demarchelet actually was, you know, as talented as any of them, maybe, and uh, Dubowie caught the first crop for, for Peter Brandt, and unfortunately, he got hurt in the Belmont Derby. He was undefeated going on that race, and uh, had his career shut, cut short, and for three-year-old male turf horses, I put him up there with the, the the best I've had, and um, there have been some good ones. You know, at, at that stage of his career, he was he was as good as any of them. Fortunately, they're giving him a shot over at Claiborne Farm to stand at stud, and I think he's a good prospect. So, you know, we had a nice Kingman Colt uh, public sector debut at Saratoga. I'm sure you saw, and mm. he uh, he's from the latest crop we bought, and he looks really talented. And then we had a nice Lopa de Vega filly yesterday at Saratoga at her at large for for Mr. Brandt, and she looks good. So. We have plenty of uh, good prospects so far. I'm probably forgetting some. There's plenty more we haven't run that we think have talent. Just in terms of what you might be doing this year, what what does it look like? I'm sure you'd like to be a Tattersall's um, regulations permitting, but if, if you can't get there, what will you do? Yeah, it's a tough, uh, it's a tough call. We're, um, we're working on that right now. It's a, a day-by-day sort of situation to see what the most recent restrictions or lack of will be so i'm hopeful i can go over i something i really look forward to each year to go over there for a few days and, and pick and start to pick out some some prospects i love the european pedigrees and really going back to your original question about you know how this came up between uh, mr brant and i about going over I, I was very excited about going over there and, and shopping for stuff i just can't get over here and that that's really what it comes down to you know for someone that has a lot of turf horses it's, it's like going into toy store in manhattan over there so you know you can't get them all and you run into some heavy hitters bidding but we've held our own and we've we've hauled a lot of horses out of there are you excited about what this might do for the overall quality of american turf horses for for a couple of generations you know you've already mentioned a horse who is going to stand at stud at claiborne who you've bought at tattersall's i i do see that these horses that we do well with are going to find their ways you know, into the American pedigrees over here. Surely when we trade them out, eventually some will maybe find their way home, but some of them will just stay here. You know, I know some American breeders that have already been interested in some of the horses that we've had over here to to buy them and keep them here. So I think it's really good uh, for American turf racing. And, you know, I think it's going to be a very positive influence on our breed over here. Chad, thanks so much. Thank you. I mean, take care. Next up on the show, I'm happy to have with us Bloodstock agent Jamie Lloyd. Jamie, how are you today? I'm very well. Fantastic to hear. Let's start with a general question about what you're up to these days. It seems like you have a lot going on, even by horse racing business standards. Yeah, I kind of, me and my wife talk about that a lot. I seem to remember those 11 years trading in California as being uh, the quiet time. <laughs> I like not mind going back to just having just having one job again. Uh, but we've got, uh, obviously we have the farm here where we do a lot of pre-training and breaking. And we also do a, a quite a large, uh, have a quite a large breeding operation. Um, and then with uh, the bloodstock agency is now based uh, between here and, and America with David Mia. And uh, we've been very fortunate to, to have a lot of success recently with that and keep that going well. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's pause on your partnership with David Mia and exactly how it works. Well, me and David have been sort of, I'd say, probably best friends for about 20 years now. Um, when I trained, David was actually my main work rider. He's probably regarded as one of the best work riders in America. And I think he's probably on the verge of hanging up his boots. But uh, he's still, he's definitely one of the main talents over there. 
Um, but I, I came home and he got interested in Bloodstock as a sort of natural progression from what he was doing, especially having been involved with us for so long, buying all the European horses when I was there uh, for other trainers as well. I mean, when I was fortunate to buy all the horses for Mike Mitchell and Jeff Mullins and for Ben Cecil and various people when I was there. So uh, he was always sort of, sort of involved in that in various ways. He's obviously teamed up with Richard Baltus early on and um, he's a great mate to both of us. And they've had huge success together. And we've been fortunate enough to, to buy in some, some nice horses from here, like Madden Dance a lot and Lady Prance a lot. Uh, more recently, Bodicita, uh, who will be running in the Rodeo Drive uh, quite um, in the next couple of weeks. David will be known to uh, American fans. I know he was part of the, the Singletary story years back, but has sat on uh, right. so many, so many good <laughs> ones. I'll, I'll ask you a sidetrack question about your time in California. What do you miss the most yeah. about, uh, about living and working out there? It was a huge shame for us to come back. I mean, I think I'd speak for me and my wife where I'd say we probably both still refer to it as home. Uh, but I think it's more than anything, I've just missed the people. I mean, we were there a long time, and uh, a lot of a lot of the California racetrackers just feel like family to us. And I'm fortunate enough to spend a great deal of time, uh, you know, between sales and visiting the racetracker in California. So um, still get to keep up with them a lot. But um, yeah, definitely, it would be the people more than anything else. That's great. Uh, I wanted to ask about how you go about specifically buying for these clients in America that you've uh, kept in such good touch with, even though you're obviously no longer based there. I'm certainly in a unique position where I have a, uh, have that relationship with the trainers themselves. But as far as the clients are concerned, as time goes on, obviously they, they change and progress. And, you know, that's where David is so key to the, to the, to the, to the partnership where he can uh, sort of culture those relationships with new clients, but also at least they, they know me and they have a track record with me as well. So it's a, it's a great balance between the two of us. Um, but quite often we are, for me personally, I would be working for people I wouldn't necessarily have met. I would have had uh, some sort of communication with, but David would perhaps uh, handle that more than I would. And um, I'd be on this side doing, doing the work, doing the groundwork on this end. It sounds like you're almost two sides of, of the same coin. Uh, maybe a, yeah. a, a very logical step for somebody to reach out who was interested in this sale to, to get almost the best of both worlds, to have somebody based in the U.S., but then also with your, with your expertise. Is that, is that part of the idea of the partnership at this point? Yeah, I think so as well. I mean, it works both ways. We, you, know, it works, you know, we have my clients buy through David in, in the U.S. We recently bought some nice ones at OBS. But in terms of reaching out this way, I think it does make sense. And I think as well, you have the added bonus of you have somebody here that, that's trained there and knows know what you know works there and what doesn't work there and um you know that can help a lot but i mean in terms of um international participation in the sales over here this year i think you know there's a there's a, there's a huge depth of um industry professionals on this side there ready to assist in any way that they can in in getting um getting the job done and, and not missing out on a year that could potentially be or could potentially provide great value uh, given the economic um, you know, circumstances within uh, Europe. Let's pull back the lens for a second and talk more generally about the yearling market this year and the challenge that it's facing. You just indicated you thought there might be some opportunities, but give us your big picture view of what's been happening. Well, so far we've had two yearling sales. We've had the Doncaster sale, the Goss UK sale at Doncaster, which we were actually consigning at remarkably so our first time consigning there, we had uh, six lots, which we sold five and ended up seventh on the uh, leading consigner board with the highest average. 
so we had a great sale now overall obviously the sale was um washed down by quite a significant percentage and so was the average but that was expected that was a more select sale with a sort of higher price tag and uh you know it'd be a big sale for brief consigners too and it'd be a big sale for trainers looking at early types now um in comparison to that we had the uh, ascot sale that was relocated to tunnels yesterday that fared very well um they had an 81 percent clearance rate and i think their average was up around 13 percent or something like that so they they you know that that lower end of the market actually fared remarkably well and was incredibly uh, resilient which you wouldn't have probably expected now moving on I don't know if you're aware, but all the Euro, all the uh, English, Irish sales have been relocated to the UK this year, uh, just to try and facilitate, um, you know, any more ease of trade for everybody. Um, now, you know, there is a lot, there is a, a chance they could get a little monotonous, all being in the same place, and it's going to drag on. But we've got a very compact sales season now, and a lot of horses to sell, and I'm sure there will be the effects felt in, in certain in certain areas of the market. I wanted to ask you to speak a little bit directly to a portion of the audience that's listening, who are people in the United States who haven't yet worked with a UK-based bloodstock agent before, but uh, might be interested in ahead of this uh, ahead of this sale. What would you? Uh, what would you? What would your advice be to people in that position? I think my main advice would be would be to reach out. There's two very important organisations involved here. One would be GBRI, which on a normal year would facilitate anybody coming over. And be there to to organise and assist you in any way in terms of your travel, your accommodation, your your introductions to certain people, uh, and your overall experience of being here and any information you might need. Now, uh, running alongside them is something I'm involved with, which is called the Federation of Brunswick Agents, which is an organisation based in the UK. It's been here for a very long time. There's currently around, I think, just over 40 members. Now, the unique thing about this um, federation is that the, 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 the members are all duty bound to stick to their code of ethics. These are the kind of things like being bound to, to, to work in the best interest of the client, to ensure that there's no conflicts of interest, to make sure that everything they do is transparent and there's no misrepresentation of any facts or anything, to work in a confidential manner. And obviously as well, that there's recourse for the client. You know, if they're unsatisfied or they're unhappy, they have the right to go before the council and issue a complaint against an agent if they weren't happy. So they, they have that security of knowing working with, a, with an accredited agent to the Federation of Godstock Agents gives you that, um, that sense of security. And if it was me, I mean, I would be reaching out to the GBRI, either um, Amanda Pryor or Minty Farquhar, who, you know, deal with the clients. And I'm sure they would steer you in the direction of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents as being a great place to, um, to, uh, to, to perhaps find somebody that you feel you could work with. Let's pause on the, the, the FBA for a minute. I think that's a really interesting idea in a business that sort of famously has the, the reputation of, of occasionally yeah. resembling <laughs> the Wild West. How, how did it come yeah. into be? How aware of the history of it are you? How did it come into be? And has it proved popular and, and effective? I think it's growing more so and more so. It's now under the leadership of a, of a man called Oliver St. Lawrence, who's a very well-respected man within our industry. And Oliver's, you know, a great one for, for, for trying to bring around change and, and to drive the Federation forward into really meaning something. And I think, you know, there's, there's, a, there's about eight of the members that make up the council and they sort of oversee the rest of us. And we are, like I say, we are all duty-bound uh, to... to to stick to the rules of the federation and to work in the best interests of our clients. And I, 
I think if I was somebody from abroad working, wanting to work here without, without necessarily having boots on the ground, you know, this is the ideal way to, to get in touch with somebody. I mean, there's a, there's a great website where you can go on and you can read the, some of the, you know, brief bio of, of most of the members and, and also have their contact details should you wish to, um, to make an inquiry. Fantastic stuff. Anything you're looking forward to in particular coming up in uh, books one and two with the sale? Yeah, I think uh, we, we are selling a few, um, which I think we're probably not, uh, we, we know we, we've got a nice no-name never called to sell and um, for a client and we'll be looking forward to that. But also, I mean, just the depth of the catalogue in general. I mean, I think you had Jimmy on earlier and he touched on it. There are, there are I think, uh, more than 50, 50 relations to group one and classic winners in the sale. There are, um, I think, 20 group one producing mayors in the sale. It's, I mean, it's a depth like no other. I mean, more and more so, you know, the turf racing in America, from, even from my days, I only trained turf horses, but it's developed so much and, and grown so much. And the desire and the demand for these top class turf horses is, is ever increasing. And the best place to source them is, is, is in book one. Jamie, this is great stuff. Thank you so much for your time and perspective. Would love to get you back on soon for a, a longer conversation about your career, but, uh, but, but really appreciate your insights here. <laughs> I appreciate you having me on. And uh, yeah, like I say, I would encourage anybody to get in touch and not just to, uh, to, uh, to stand by because it could be a great, some great opportunities over here this year. Cheers, my friend. Thank you very much, Pete. Take care. Before we get to our next guest, I actually want to welcome somebody to the world, the general manager of Great British Racing International, as mentioned in the previous segment, is Amanda Pryor. Well, she's out on maternity leave because she and Matt Pryor of Tattersalls just had their first baby. And I want to welcome him, James Frederick Pryor, to the world. With that said, we will now bring in the acting general manager, of GBRI, and that's Minty Farquhar. Minty, how are you today? Hi, Peter. I'm very well, thank you. How are you? Things are going very well. Been having fun learning a lot about this upcoming sale. In the interview I just did with Jamie Lloyd, he mentioned you and GBRI and the work that you're doing to help with the sale. I wanted to get down to a few more specifics, though, about some of the tools, especially, that are available to American buyers and how they might be able to use them, even if they decide to rely on a British-based bloodstock agent. It sounds like there's a lot of information that can be gotten from farther away. There is. And, you know, as Jamie would have, would have touched upon, I'm sure it's, it's of course, not, not ideal, being as far from ideal, being um, unable to attend a sale, let alone a yelling sale in, in person. But um, there's going to be lots of resources available for, for buyers overseas to, to help them participate from afar, and, and not least the, you know, the, the, the UK-based agents uh, such as Jamie, um, who, can, who can, you know, team up with uh, owners and, and buyers and trainers overseas to, to try and um, make, make the best of a bad situation this year. Um, I mean, there's also a lot of a uh, assets available via the Tattersalls themselves. So, so firstly, access to visual aids for book one. And these have really been improved this year. There's been a, there's been a real rise in the quality and the uptake of the confirmation videos and pre-sale photos of all the lots. 
Um, and not only that, but buyers can actually uh, register for the online Tattersalls repository. Um, that they can get their preferred vet to to have access to and review the X-rays and video endoscopies without the need to travel to the cell, which is um, a great asset this year. And and that has over 95% of uptake for for the lots in book one. So um, that's going to be a really useful asset. And then of course. As we've seen across across sales this year, um, the online bidding platform uh, is really quick and straightforward to use. And in fact, we saw quite how quick and easy at the the August sale, um, when around 40% of the lots were were either sold or actually underbid online. I mean, obviously, unproven stock is is not as easy to buy online as as a horse in training sale. It's difficult, I guess, when you don't you haven't seen the horse running, you don't know what you're buying. You you understand the product you're buying a little bit less. Um, but even so, we've still seen a fair amount of traffic on the online bidding platform since the, you know, the start of the yearling sales uh, a few weeks ago. And prospective buyers can, can register for, for this service uh, online, but they must do it at least 48 hours before the start of the sale. Um, and then, of course, for those who may not be comfortable with the online platform, Tattersalls will be conducting the uh, telephone bidding if you contact the Tattersalls team, they can issue a purchase registration form for that. So, so there's loads of assets on hand to hopefully help buyers overseas to make the most of this year in which there's going to be potentially a, a lot of value on offer. I mean, it's 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 a very prestigious and packed with quality catalogue anyway in, in, in every year, really, at book one and book two. I think for those who are willing to really shake things up and step out of their comfort zone and try to get creative about their approach, there's potentially going to be rich rewards on offer because it's um, it's a buyer's market this year. Jamie touched on this as well, but I'd like to hear your perspective about how interested USA buyers can get the ball rolling in terms of uh, participating in this sale. Are you the person that should be reached out to? How, how should that work? So certainly we can help. I mean, we're, we're on hand. Uh, you can get in touch with us via greatbritishracinginternational.com and we will try and facilitate um, as much as possible, be that uh, travel plans or accommodation bookings over here. Obviously, things are a little bit di- different at the moment uh, with protocols for, for making sure that everybody is uh, safe, be that either at the sales uh, or in their their chosen accommodation. So whether we have anything to do with travel accommodation or being looked after at the sales, absolutely, we can we can assist. Or, or even if it's a case of discussing who might be a suitable bloodstock agent to be in touch with, the FBA, the Federation of Bloodstock Agents website, uh, has a list of accredited bloodstock agents who who will be delighted to receive any calls. But um, And then also, as Jimmy, um, I'm sure, mentioned, the Tattersall's marketing team are very much on hand to, to assist as well. There's a bit of matchmaking that's going on here for someone from afar coming in, in terms of put, making sure they get with the right resource, would you recommend reaching out to GBRI, to someone at the FBA, or for Tattersalls first? Yeah, maybe as a starting point. I mean, I would be very happy to receive any calls from anyone who maybe hasn't played a part in the British yearling sales season thus far, but thinks actually that maybe this year it might be a, an interesting year to take part. Um, so yes, by all means, but but equally, you know, the the, the people on hand at um, Tattersalls and and the FBA in terms of the the bloodstock agents themselves and the the process, uh, you know, whether it's a question of um, getting hold of registration forms, that's obviously a question that needs to go to Tattersalls. If it's a specific question about a particular bloodstock agent, that may be one for the FBA. But but if if it's a starting point, then absolutely, a GBRI is a good place to start. I also wanted to ask you a more general question about the yearling season so far in Europe, how that's been going. And I was curious to get your perspective about what we can expect from the coming sales. 
Well, Peter, I mean, we're, we're kind of scratching the surface at the moment in terms of the numbers of yearlings to be sold in Europe this year. Um, so it's difficult to know whether the way in which these the, the two sales that have happened um, in Britain so far, the, the Gulf UK Premier yearling sale and the Tattersall's Ascot yearling sale, whether whether what's happened at those sales is going to be reflected across the, the remaining European sales this autumn. Um, also, not least because the, re the results of both were actually rather different. Um, Gulf UK's Premier yearling sale was... Um, it was tough on vendors, uh, not least due to a pretty noticeable absence of some big buyers from previous years, uh, such as Shadwell, but, um, and, and also in a manner very much a reflection on the wider economic trouble we're, we're seeing across the world. And to no one's surprise at all, the average was, was down 27% and the median was down 23%. Um, but the, the encouraging thing was that trade was happening. I mean, clearance rate was, was at 84%, which was the same as, as the previous year. That's, of course, accounting for the fact the vendors have been much more realistic um, with reserves for their horses this year. But it's encouraging that, you know, the wheels of the industry are, are still turning. Um, and then and then yesterday at Talisol's Ascot sale, which was relocated to Newmarket, we actually saw a similar clearance rate of 81%. Um, in fact, actually, at the sale, we saw gains across the board with the average up 13%, the median up 5%. So that was really, really pleasing. And as I say, I think... It's going to be difficult to, to predict exactly how the rest of the season is going to pan out. I think the general consensus would be that we'd expect the October yelling sale at Tattersalls to be to be tough going for vendors again. Now, of course, it's tough for vendors. It's, it's a buyer's market. And I think we're also going to see a lot of value on offer this year. And, you know, a couple of years down the line, we're, I think we're going to have a lot of fairy tale stories of, of cheap purchases um, that have gone on to, to do pretty well. So so we're and we're also contending with the, the near certainty of a, a pretty drastically reduced international buying bench which is which is not going to help but i but i think for those willing to as i say kind of step outside the box and collaborate with a uk-based bloodstock agent to make the most of the resources available um and take a bit of a risk there could be some real real value around this year great stuff minty thank you so much for your time today and uh, godspeed for the rest of this busy season thanks peter i'm back with nick luck gonna be out of here in a couple of minutes but i did have one more important question, Nick, that I wanted to ask you. I know you've had a chance to look over the catalogs and, you know, as a as a objective observer and someone who's keen on this stuff, I was curious to get your perspective on a couple of the lots in the upcoming sale that drew your eye that were particularly interesting to you. Yeah, I thought just from what we've been talking about through this this session, lot 108 would be the first one that would be very interesting, I think, to Chad Brown and co. This is a Frankel out of cursory glance cursory glance herself was a very talented filly who never fulfilled her potential really because of injury um this is a horse who has digital age in the second dam this is the craig bennett merry fox family and further back it's the family of the oaks winner time charter so originally it was the barnet family's um pedigree all the time horses time away time charter not before time and craig bennett's merry fox stud has been curating this family lately and this one by Frankel 108 with digital age in the second dam, I'm sure will be of significant interest to US buyers. The other one that everyone's going to be looking at is lot 436, who's Galileo out of Shastai. Now, Shastai's progeny to go through the ring at Tattersall's in book one so far have in turn made, well, a paltry 230,000 guineas for the first one and then the next four that went through the ring made 3.6 million sales topper 1.35 million 
1.3 million. And just when you thought they were getting a bit cheaper, <laughs> last year's sales topper again, 3.4 million or second sales topper, I think it was. So this is the dam of Mogul and Japan and Secret Gesture. So they have turned out to be pretty good racehorses. But when you're paying that kind of money, they, they, they could kind of only really be disappointing, I guess. But it'll be interesting to see uh, whether the 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 lot the lot this year four three six heads up into those sort of numbers. Who were the sires on the other uh, Shastai babies? They were all. I, I think they were all Galileos. Gotcha. So I think she's she. It's a it's a marriage that works very well. <laughs> very much so. Uh, I know in the U.S. in sales we always put an eye towards first year sires to maybe keep an eye on. Are there are there any of those you're particularly interested to see what happens with? Well, I was quite interested in the fact that there seemed to be more stallions on the whole represented than perhaps there normally are. So there's some more interesting stallions in the mix. A horse like Highland Reel, for example, everybody listening to this show will be familiar with because of his exploits around the globe. He's got some yearlings represented, which is a pretty big deal for a horse that was standing only at 17,500 in his first season covering. It's a pretty big deal that he's got horses in this sale. Uh, Coolmore have also got representatives of the first crop of Churchill in the sale. They'll be hoping for great things from him. He's an interesting pedigree, Churchill, because he's by Galileo, but he's out of one of their speed mares. And it's the family that traces back to the very good sprinting mare, Airwave. It's quite a it's quite a pedestrian pedigree further back, but it's a very fast one. So that's a that's an interesting sire prospect. Wooden Bassett's going to be interesting. Obviously, we know he's a brilliant sire already, but the fact that he's now moved to Coolmore. And he's had another amazing season. There are only a handful of Wooten Bassets in this sale. 207, I think, being the first of them to come up. A colt had a hug. I would imagine that the Coolmore guys will be very keen to secure any Wooten Bassett that looks decent. And I would I would love to be a vendor um, with no with no co-interests selling a, a Wooten Bassett on the open market in this sale, if it was nice. There's just a few of the storylines to pay attention to. Uh, very happy to have been able to bring this preview to the audience in the depth that we have. And I want to thank everybody who participated, starting uh, with the man on the other end of the line with me right now. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, really appreciate getting a chance to, to chat with you today. Always a pleasure, Pete. Thanks so much. And don't forget, Nick Luck Daily, every weekday around about 5.30 a.m. Eastern will appear in your podcast inbox. Check it out. Great stuff on there. And we're talking about plenty of, of terrific news-breaking USA material on there as well. Thank you one more time to Nick. We'll also thank Minty Farquhar, Jimmy George, Chad Brown, and Jamie Lloyd. Really uh, fantastic getting a chance to catch up with all of you today. That's going to do it for this show. This has been a production of in the Money Media, our business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way. <laughs>